Welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. This was the audio version of the past week's summaries brought to you by the Herculean Sam Parnell, Aaron Lacey, Thomas Davis, and Clay Smith. We'll start off by pointing out perhaps the obvious telemedicine and telehealth in general have seen a huge uptick in recent weeks. This is a realm that many have been shy to dip their feet in in the past, but have recently been somewhat forcibly put into it. Luckily, as with most things, the journal feed has got your back. We've got together a list of decision aid resources in order to help you make the right calls for when you're not actually able to see your patients in person. And though I do love the sound of my own voice, I don't think reading out URLs is going to be very helpful. The blog post from April 13th will likely prove much better for you. Uh, And you can find everything you need to know there. Now, we'll get back to our usual article summaries and clinical pearls. The first article for this week was titled Heroes in Crisis. Trauma centers should be screening for and intervening on post-traumatic stress in emergency responders. From the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. It benefits no one to forget that emergency medicine is very much a team sport, and it's rather a far-reaching team as well, with very few unneeded members, which means that if any part of our team is hurting, the whole team is hurting. You may not know what's going to walk through your trauma bay doors, but you can be confident that whatever comes in, you're going to have everything that you need, and that you'll be working in a mostly ideal and familiar environment. Not everyone on our team or all of our colleagues have that privilege, and that is something worth acknowledging. Our emergency responders are out there in the field, in strange and even dangerous environments, and that's just another day at work for them. These girls and these guys are heroes, and that heroism can be traumatizing sometimes. Emergency responders have higher than expected rates of suicide, and many will not report PTSD or other symptoms of mental health. If we have opportunities to improve this, then we should. This was a study from a single urban center where emergency responders were screened for PTSD. This included paramedics, firefighters, law enforcement, and correctional officers. There were 258 respondents in the study, with a median number of years of experience of 14.5. These are no rookies. One quarter of these people met diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, of which 81% had not sought out care. Some were afraid of losing their jobs. Some were worried about it, and others didn't even consider it a problem. The majority, at 82%, felt that the trauma center was the best place to screen for this. Ideally, we would be able to screen and directly intervene in a confidential manner for these people these parts of our team. In a spoonful, a hospital-based trauma center may be the ideal place for community emergency responders to get the mental health assistance that they need due to the emotional toll associated with their work. On to the next article titled Antiemetics in Children with Acute Gastroenteritis, a Meta-Analysis, out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. No one likes a vomiting kid. No one likes a vomiting anybody but definitely not a kid either. Acute gastroenteritis is a common disease, particularly in pediatric acute care. 
where dehydration is really the major concern, especially if that kid can't tolerate oral hydration due to their vomiting. A lot of therapies have been tried, but the evidence and efficacy of these therapies has mostly been limited. This was a meta-analysis looking at a total of almost 3,500 children diagnosed with acute diarrhea and gastroenteritis. The reviewers determined that ondansetron was the antiemetic which they categorized as the best intervention for stopping vomiting, preventing hospitalization, and preventing the need for IV hydration. For them, this meant that this was the only intervention that was better than placebo, as well as better than at least one other antiemetic. With ondansetron also coming in with minimal adverse events and a risk of diarrhea no higher than placebo. Other treatments, including metoclopramide, domiperidone, dexamethasone, dimenhydrinate, and granisetron, were less effective than ondansetron and similar to placebo. Noteworthy from this study is also that subgroup analysis suggested that ondansetron has increased efficacy when given orally as opposed to IV and was less effective for severe vomiting. This study was limited by low quality evidence in many of the treatment comparisons though. But overall, oral adansetron comes in as your best bet. In a spoonful, oral adansetron may be a safe and effective therapy for children with acute gastroenteritis to help avoid IV hydration and subsequent hospitalization. The third article in a similar vein was titled Ondansetron Prescription for Home Use in a Pediatric Emergency Department out of the Journal of Pediatric Emergency Care. Now, if we're comfortable sending our vomiting pediatric patient home, we'll be sorely tempted to prescribe something to help them keep their lunch down and hope that this will also prevent them from coming back to the ER. The use of ondansetron for this purpose is increasing, not surprising given the last article we just discussed, and has been shown to be relatively safe. Where there is a lack of literature is on its use at home after discharge, and how that might affect bounce-back rates to the hospital. Since, if there's no difference, is it even worth prescribing? This study was a retrospective analysis of ondansetron prescribing in an urban university teaching hospital. Data was gathered from patients discharged with a diagnosis of either acute gastroenteritis or those discharged with any diagnosis that had an associated prescription of ondansetron. For the acute gastroenteritis group where 71% were prescribed ondansetron, return to hospital rates were 5 and 6% on days 3 and 7 respectively with no significant difference on whether or not they received ondansetron or not. For the all-diagnoses group, the return to hospital rates were actually identical, 5 and 6% on days 3 and 7 respectively. So overall, giving an at-home prescription of ondansetron doesn't seem to make a difference on return to hospital. But keep in mind that return to hospital would not be the only reason that we might give ondansetron. I suppose most are giving it to reduce vomiting, which is probably something that our patients value. But this study did not address that aspect. In a spoonful, there was no difference in three-day and seven-day return to a pediatric emergency department in patients who received ondansetron prescriptions versus those who did not for a variety of diagnoses. Our last article is going to be one of our journal feed deep dives into pericarditis. This article was titled Management of Acute and Recurrent Pericarditis, Jack's State-of-the-Art Review, out of the Journal of the American Coalition of Cardiology. 
So here we're going to have a nice review of pericarditis so that we can cover all the major points in order to keep you up to date on this common diagnosis. If you train yourself to spot the diagnosis of pericarditis, it may come up more than you think. Recognition is important to help you to guide patients to avoid exercise and as well to treat the underlying inflammation. First of all, there are quite a few causes of pericarditis. Among them are viruses, bacteria, post-cardiac procedures, autoimmunity, neoplastic, idiopathic, and even TB in developing countries, and as well as several more. So keep in mind that it can pop up in a lot of different places. To help you make the diagnosis, the European Society of Cardiology has put out some guidelines, which require two of the following four conditions for a diagnosis. The first condition is chest pain. Classically, this will be pericardial chest pain, which is sharp with a rapid onset and may improve with sitting up and leaning forward. Second is a friction rub, which will be best heard with the patient leaning forward along the left sternal border. Third are the ECG changes, classics such as ST elevation and PR depression, which are only seen about 60% of the time. Fourth is pericardial effusion. By way of blood tests, they won't be too helpful. Troponin is not going to be a good negative prognostic marker, even though it defines myopericarditis. CRP elevation may help predict recurrence, though, and it can also be useful to see if your patient is responding well to anti-inflammatory therapy. What's really going to be high yield, though, is a cardiac echo, which is often the only test that's going to be needed, and is going to be important to check for complications as well. So once you've made the diagnosis, not every patient requires admission. In fact, the list of things that suggest the need for admission is actually quite short. You should be thinking of admission if you think that the cause is something requiring of admission, like malignancy or TB, or if they have predictors of bad outcomes. Predictors for bad outcomes may be things like a fever above 38 degrees Celsius, subacute onset over several days to weeks, a large effusion over 20 millimeters on echocardiogram or evidence of tamponade, and no response to anti-inflammatory therapy. Finally, of course, treatment, which really comes down to decreasing inflammation. First-line treatment is going to be NSAIDs, despite the lacking of RCT data to support that practice, and you'll probably want to gradually taper them over weeks until the pain resolves and CRP normalizes. In conjunction with NSAIDs is the use of colchicine, which has been shown to hasten resolution and decrease recurrences. This should be continued for at least three months. If NSAIDs and colchicine fails, the next step is steroids, but you're going to be trying to avoid this in most cases. You may consider giving them early in some circumstances, though, such as cases involving immune checkpoint inhibitors or autoimmune pericarditis. That's about it. Those are the fundamentals of pericarditis management in the ER. So, what did we learn today? We learned that our team counts those who work outside the hospital, and many of them are suffering as a result of the work that they do for us. Hospital trauma centers may be the best place to give them the help that they need. Next, gastroenteritis is a pain in the stomach. Kids run a real risk of dehydration due to vomiting and intolerance of oral fluids. Ondansetron, preferably orally, may be the best bet to keep these kids off an IV and out of hospital. Another reason to give Ondansetron is to hopefully prevent the patients that we sent home from coming back. Unfortunately, at day three and at the day seven marks, Ondansetron did not appear to accomplish this goal in the pediatric population. 
Lastly, pericarditis. Look for at least two of the four diagnostic features. You'll want to get these patients an echocardiogram, and then first-line treatment is NSAIDs with colchicine. Most of these patients will be able to return home. So that's it for this week for the journal feed. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. A new feature that we've recently implemented through a partnership with Hippo Education is that you're now able to get CME credits for the work that you do reading from the journal feed. So check out our website for the details on that. As always, we're here for you to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. Thank you.